Hello and welcome to this episode of the Tax Security Podcast, where we talk about all things Cisco security, such as hot issues, configuration help, troubleshooting, and just interesting security topics that we see come through TAC. Uh, as always, my name is Magnus Mortensen, and I'm going to be your host for today's podcast. But with me, I have three very good friends and firewall experts. Obviously, we've got Mr. David White here with me. Uh, David, how are you doing today? Uh, David, is there a reason why you're still wearing your parka here indoors? <laughs> what can I say? I got Florida blood in me. Yeah, well, well. Uh, also with uh, me and David here are actually two special guests, Mr. Kevin Klaus and Mr. Rob Couture. How are you doing, guys? Hello. All right, so Kevin, what's new and exciting for you in uh, firewall support world? Well, we've got a lot of exciting changes coming up in the ASA world, which is one of the key things that we'll be talking about today with the ASA 932 code release. So we'll be talking about some of the new features, new functionality on of the 932 platform. Not bad. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. And Mr. Rob, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you. All right. Well, that was short and to the point. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> the way I like it. Um, so, uh, obviously, as Kevin alluded to moments ago, we're going to be talking today about ASA code version 932, and uh, comes with it a whole host of new features and functions for the ASA platform. Uh, obviously, if you want to start running this kind of code in your environment, you want to know a little bit more about it. So today we're going to talk about some of the interesting new features that you, as a network administrator, can use in your environment and uh, what the positives are going to be for you. All right, well, one of the uh, most interesting uh, and noteworthy items on, if you were to take a look at the uh, 932 release notes, is support for a platform known as the 5506X, which is uh, effectively a uh, small office, home office replacement for the older 5505. Now, um, yay. yay, yay! I know a lot of you out there are probably saying, oh, it's about time. Well, this uh, new platform comes with actually some nice new features for uh, actually additional security and performance. And I mean, it's obviously a lot beefier than the, uh, than the old 5505. Um, again, sporting eight ports on the back. But uh, there are some differences about how those ports work than what you're more familiar with on the 5505 platform. Uh, Kevin, tell me a little bit about this sort of port difference that folks are going to see. Let's talk at a physical level first. Sure. So on the 5505, as many of you may already be aware, the eight ports operated as switch ports on the 5505 platform. So you would set up as trunk or access ports and then set up VLAN interfaces on the ASA 5505, which was different than the other ASA platforms in the past. The 5506 is going to follow the model of the higher end platforms of the past and that each interface will be a layer three interface instead of a switch port interface. Uh, interesting. So yeah, so if you were to rip apart a 5505, um, you'd find out that it really was basically a firewall and an integrated switch. So it really was a switch that serviced those ports on the uh, on the back of the box. Uh, and right. right, the 5506, they're routed ports. So for those who are used to maybe plugging in a few devices and keeping them on the same VLAN, uh, that won't be possible with the 5506 platform because, again, they're going to be treated each as their own routed interface. So uh, obviously there might be a little bit of topology changes to integrate this in replacement of your 5505, but uh, I think even with that challenge, there's a lot of other features that come with the platform that make it worth moving to, uh, one of which uh, I think that comes to mind is going to be the firepower support. So uh, for listeners who've never seen firepower or know what firepower is, it's integration with the uh, SourceFire product line. So a 5506 will be able to run an instance of the SourceFire analytical capabilities known as firepower. 
So that gives you on-box uh, features like, uh, I don't know, IPS. Um, Application visibility and control. Web uh, filtering. URL filtering. URL yep. filtering, yeah. Yep. So this really kind of helps turn that platform uh, from just a simple firewall into more of a total threat management device for your small offices, which is yep. really quite convenient. So um, how, do, how are we going to be managing that kind of integration? Is there anything different about it? So it will run on a dedicated solid-state drive, kind mm -hmm. of like the ASA 5500X platforms currently do. Mm -hmm. uh, so the solid-state drive won't be removable in the 5506 platform, but it will uh, run on the SSD very similar to the, the, the models of the 5500X. Um, so And there, I think there was a question, too, that some of our listeners have is, why do we need an SSD, right? Why is the SSD required to run Firepower? Bitcoin mining? <laughs> <laughs> So, it, it, I don't know, Kevin, if you want to answer, but, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with if we get disconnected from the management center, right, defense center, then we need a way of buffering the logs, right, because it's a security device. You want to be able to buffer those. So it'll leverage the SSD for buffering while it's not communicating with defense center. And, I mean, in addition to those features, you mentioned defense center. So uh, for our source fire customers who are familiar with uh, defense center, that's off-box management for the source fire Firepower product line. Um, the 5506 will also ship with on-box management functionality built into ASDM. That's right. So uh, a lot of that also will rely on communicating to the Firepower code that is running on that SSD. So you don't have to necessarily spin up any sort of external off-box management. It's being integrated into ASDM to kind of complete the full suite. So obviously another thing that comes with the 932 and later code is Firepower support. So Kevin, what is Firepower for those who don't know? So Firepower is a new source fire technology that Cisco has recently acquired and integrated into our firewall solution. Mm -hmm. So before, users you know, who were using a 5505 had had firewall functionality, but that was in most cases, that was it. Yeah, if you, if you wanted to do anything IPS related, you needed to get one of the uh, SSC IPS cards. Right. So now what we have is on the 5506 platform, we have an SSD on which you can install and run the SourceFire technology as well on the same box. Okay. So um, the way that this kind of works is similar to any other module on an ASA that you might be used to. Uh, again, you have the common firepower, excuse me, firewall processing of the ASA uh, with optional ability to divert traffic that passes through your firewall up to the firepower for inspection. That's uh, right. And what are some of the common things that people might use on the firepower? So people, if they want to do application visibility and control, if they want to do URL filtering and inspection at a, at a higher level on their mm -hmm. web traffic, they can do that right on the one fifty five zero six platform. So it, it does give you a lot more security functionality in a small box form factor than, than was available on the 5505. Essentially the, the target for small office, home office, all-in-one type solutions. Exactly. And for those who have used things like the software-based IPS module, or the CX module of the past, then you can redirect traffic using the policy map, like you said, to the, mm -hmm. in the same way to the module that will run on the SSD on the box. So, you know, again, the, the policy map configuration, uh, if you take a look in our configuration guides, is all about building a hierarchy of policy map classes of traffic to match and then taking actions on those. So right. this is going to be just like any other action. We're going to be diverting that traffic up to the firepower module and instance. So for managing firepower, uh, Rob, how does that actually work on the 5506 platform? 
So with the 5506, we'll have uh, an on-box version of Defense Center. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a lighter version of the Defense Center where you don't have to go out and purchase additional licenses and install the VM. Um, it'll allow you to do uh, management, um, configuration, things like that. Monitoring. Monitoring, upgrades. upgrades yes. So if... Uh, if our if our customers and our listeners uh, already have a SourceFire installation, obviously with Defense Center, is this something that they can then maybe import into Defense Center and kind of unify? absolutely, absolutely, yep. Um, it'll make it a lot easier. You'll you'll get more benefit out of using it with the Defense Center. Yeah, the, and some of the features that you would get uh, on the larger Defense Center are going to be things like policy sharing and kind of unified management to give you that sort of one stop shop for configuration and managing your security devices. So just as a sort of an uh, example scenario, let's say I'm currently using a 5505 and I want to upgrade to this new 5506 platform. I'm currently using ASDM to manage my ASA. Can I still use ASDM to manage my 5506? And, and how does that interact with the this new source fire that's running on the 5506? So the... Um new version of ASDM that comes with the 5506 will have additional tabs. You know, you're used to seeing, you know, configuration, monitoring, and home tabs. Uh, There's going to be configuration sections for the firepower portion uh, that will look very similar to what you're used to in ASDM. Uh, There will be sections for monitoring and configuring and upgrading and essentially full-blown administration of your firepower, uh, but built into that same ASDM infrastructure. So it's still a one-stop location for you to go and manage uh, your device, uh, but now with the added features and functions. Okay. So if I decide to go and implement the source fire functionality on my 5506 as well, what you're saying is I can basically use ASDM to manage it as if I had managed an integrated IPS previously. Right. Same idea. Same idea. Now, so for those who are familiar with our modules, they tend to have management port requirements. And a lot of our platforms, especially the Dash X series, all have dedicated management interfaces. And if you want to use a module, you need to have that management interface plugged in and configured because things like Firepower or um, the CX platform or any of the others require that physical management port for communication. Because when you provision a management IP, it's provisioning it on that specific port. So when you do get a 5506 and you plug in all your interfaces, you're going to need to bring that management port into your network the same way that you would if that was some other type of module. So uh, that's definitely just a, a gotcha caveat that we've seen with the 55X series that you know, the 5515s, 12s, 25s, and 45s, um, that I'm sure we'll probably see as well on the 5506 platform. Now, um, there's another feature that is actually pretty big and, and interesting from kind of a development coding, you know, geek perspective, and that's a REST API for configuration and monitoring. So, uh, Kevin, tell me a little bit about this. What is this whole REST API functionality? Sure, Magnus. So I'll go over some of the benefits that REST API will provide for users who want to manage their ASAs in different ways than they have been able to in the past. Uh, first of all, just a little bit about REST API. REST API is uh, it's a RESTful application programming interface. So what it basically does is provides programmatic access to managing individual ASAs through what we call represent- excuse me, representational state transfer or REST. So this API allows us uh, to allows clients externally to perform different what we call CRUD events, which is create, read, update, and delete. Um, so we can do that, those operations on ASA resources using the HTTPS protocol and the REST methodology. So, some, so what this kind of does is this gives users the ability to manage their ASAs from other third-party management systems that support RESTful APIs. 
It provides additional flexibility and the ability to script device configuration changes. You can do this using Python, Perl, or JavaScript. Interesting. Yeah, so it's, you know, for those who prefer not to use, you know, traditional existing methods that we have, such as ASDM, CSM, uh, the CLI, this provides us a, a programmatical way to script out changes using using JSON over HTTPS. That's an interesting concept. I mean, um, you know, here in here in TAC, you know, we like to develop our own tools, and I'm sure a lot of our customers are in that same sort of mindset. You know, nothing is uh, more comforting than controlling your network through something you've created. So uh, for those uh, programmers and folks who like to, uh, you know, basically for us, by us style tool development out there, uh, the REST API is definitely something to play around with. Um, how does somebody get a little bit more information about configuring the REST API? Are there any specific installation instructions for it? Or like, how do we, how do you get started with REST API? Sure. So there's a pretty good quick start guide that's already posted and available on CCO. Um, and there's the other nice thing about REST API is it's, there's a relatively easy way to learn. Um, this through an onbox REST API documentation and console. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's right on the ASA. So once you go through uh, the quick start guide, which we can provide in the, in the transcript for this, uh, for this in our show notes, yeah, yeah in our show notes, yeah, um, we'll have the quick start guide there. You will need to download an image for the REST API. Once you get that copied onto your ASA and you you specify the path to the image and you enable the image, mm-hmm. you can then browse to an onbox console on your ASA that provides uh, it provides different documentation, working examples, different ways to do gets, puts, posts, things like that, mm-hmm. um, and gives you examples on how to do it. So it's pretty easy to learn in that regard. You can. Take those examples, tweak them to, to different ways that you want them, export them yeah. to using Python scripts, things like that. And then you can then ex- execute, excuse me, execute those scripts <laughs> on some device that you want to use to manage the ASA. Yeah, and just for clarification, I mean, the main use cases for this are large-scale deployments, right? right. Um, you know, if you only have got two or three ASAs or less, right, this probably isn't for you. But if you're managing large amounts of ASAs, and you need to do things like um, programmatic backups of configs and or upgrades mm-hmm. of devices. Um, typically, you'd have to script those through an SSH session or something Or else, some right? expect script. and yeah. Exactly, right. And using the APIs is much easier in that case. And cleaner. And cleaner, yeah. So with this new REST API capability, I mean, there's a lot of room for creativity and tools and all that kind of stuff. What are some interesting examples or things you've seen customers do with it so far? Yeah, so Magnus, you know, it is pretty pretty new. You know, we don't have a whole lot of customers that have made the switch to 932 yet. So the case load is still light so far. Um, I was doing some digging and playing around with it a little bit in my lab just to get familiar with the REST API feature and kind of what it can do. And uh, the documentation in the console is, is really neat. And uh, it gives you the ability you can dig into interface config menus and you can look at, okay, so I want to list all my interfaces or perhaps I want to change some global settings like, you know, permit same security intra-interface or something like that. It gives you examples on, on what the J, what the actual uh, Python script would look like, and you can even export that. So that's what makes it so easy is you yeah. can take that, throw that script into some, you know, some Python file somewhere, and you know how to change that ro- remotely from some machine as long as it can run Python scripts. So um, it's pretty easy to do. You don't have to be, you know, an uh, expert programmer to do it. Um, but again, as, you know, as David was mentioning Probably not something you want to do for one or two ASAs, right. but if you've got to script out something to, to make a wide range of changes to a lot of devices, especially if you need a lot of control over, over how you want to do that programmatically, then it's a pretty cool new feature. Neat, neat. Well, From the ASA itself, you can run, it has a uh, console where you can run these uh, so scripts. So you can beta test them as you go through. Yep. Right. 
So another thing that comes with the this new ASA code is something called configuration sessions. Uh, and this is a little bit different than, uh, you know, just configuring the firewall through the CLI with instantaneous changes. What's what's the gist of this configuration session concept, Rob? So the advantages of uh, sessions is it allows you to make changes to the ASA without affecting the running configuration immediately. So you can modify an ACL uh, objects, object groups, have those changes in a pending state, basically. Mm -hmm. And then when uh, you feel you're ready to commit the changes, go ahead and commit those changes. So it's like putting changes on deck. On deck. Yeah. That's correct. Hasn't really gotten to the running config. Um, so for those who are familiar with the FWSM platform, this is a little bit like uh, the old manual commit mode for access lists. You know, you make a bunch of changes, but they don't take effect until you commit them. Um, David, what do you think about kind of this approach to configurations? I think for most users, right, this isn't something that you would want to, you know, use or leverage, right? Most of the time, most users are going to want to make changes and they want those changes to happen instantly. And oftentimes you're going to um, have those changes if you're a CLI user, you know, in a notepad type document. If you're making multiple changes, you just copy and paste it in. So th this feature is more targeted towards um, people that might have change windows, right, and already have uh, a plan as to what needs to be applied, and they want to pre-stage it on the device, and then at the time of the change window, they execute the command to actually invoke those changes, right? So that's one, you know, probably the best use case for the capability. Now, the concerns we have in, in the tech world and in support side is, you know, people could get confused, or you could have multiple people that are making changes or have the changes queued up and not actually applied, and so that causes us some area of concerns um, about how people actually leverage this capability. So I'll just say, you know, be cautious. It's not a feature for everybody, um, but where there's a valid use case, it's definitely a, a feature that was added. Agreed, because you can have up to three sessions for uh, per context, right? So you could have three people making changes all at the same time. Yeah. Or queued up changes. Queued up all changes, the same time. yes. And then whoever invokes the command to actually make the change, you know, at that point in time is when the changes actually get applied. Right. And so the something that you would change in user three, um, you know, in, in their session uh, might not be applicable anymore after user one commits their changes. So it can be definitely tricky. So yeah. um, for those who like to try out all the new features in the code, definitely try it out. But, you know, be wary of the fact that, you know, you're going to have potentially different changes pending. So uh, keep an eye out for that. The uh, command line syntax to go in and start doing those configure sessions is actually that command, configure session, and you provide a session name. So uh, again, it's a way to sort of build a policy or build um, changes into your config without actually affecting the running config. There yeah. are some limitations as well, right? So mm. if you can only modify ACLs, objects, object groups, and you can only modify, you cannot modify an ACL that's being used or called in any other commands other than the access group. Hmm. So if you have it um, as part of some of your VPN config, VPN or config or NAT or, NAT, or statements, yeah. you would not be able to modify those access lists. Right. It only, only applies for transient traffic mm -hmm. permissions denials. Interesting. Right. Very, and so it's very limited, right? And that's why I also say that the use case is kind of limited. 
for when people would want to use it. Another thing that comes with 9.3.2 is TLS 1.2 support on the ASA platform. Um, obviously, with all the security vulnerabilities that have been going around in the news lately, uh, Heartbleed being one of the most popular, then Poodle, Poodle. which uh, came out recently as well, and inevitably a long list of others that will come in the future. Um, obviously, TLS and encryption is a, is a hot topic. So with TLS 1.2 support on the ASA, that gives us, well, obviously, TLS 1.2 support. But why is that important, Rob? Well, the main um, importance of this feature is it allows for stronger encryption algorithms to be used. It also replaces that pseudo-random function uh, with SHA-1MD5 with a SHA-256 algorithm and there's added uh, support for new ciphers such as uh, AES 256, SHA 256, AES 128, SHA 256. Okay. And so I think more importantly though um, is the change in default support. So SSL v3 has been deprecated. Um, You can force the ASA to use it in 9.3 but in later versions it'll actually be completely removed. So we're trying to push everyone to TLS. Um, and get rid of SSL. And there are some command changes as well along with it. Okay. Such as? uh, Such as SSL cipher versus the older SSL encryption. Um, The SSL client version and server version commands have been um, changed. So essentially administrators have a little bit more control over what ciphers are going to be offered if the ASA is a client or if the ASA is a server. So um, it's definitely giving more power to you to ensure that, you know, all the different functionalities of your ASA are using ciphers that you want that are more secure and essentially just better functionality overall. Yeah, and with the support for TLS 1.2, to get that if you're using AnyConnect for SSL VPN, right, you also need to upgrade the AnyConnect version to Mm -hmm. support TLS version 1.2 as well. And what's the uh, version for that? Isn't I think it's so, 4.0? Yeah, 4.0 added support, but I think they've also, um, we're going to add it into a version of 3. three One of the five. later 3s? Yeah, I think. Okay. So, you know, definitely something to keep in mind. Um, you know, as more vulnerabilities come out, you know, that people start to punch even more holes in some of the older SSL code. Moving to TLS 1.2 is, uh, is definitely an important and smart move uh, just to keep yourself a little bit more secure in the long run. Another uh, item which uh, we've seen a couple of cases come in on so far is actually something called smart licensing. Um, David, I'm going to direct this over to you because I know you've had a lot to do with the licensing model changes on the ASA platform, helping modernize and, and move us to something a, a little more flexible. So what is smart licensing just in the general idea? So the general idea of smart licensing is, you know, let me, let me start with what today's licensing is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anybody that manages multiple Cisco devices that require licenses has, I'm sure, gone through the pain of applying licenses on a per-device basis. Um, you know, you have to purchase a license tied to a serial number, so you get a license. You can't transfer it. So if you decide that, oh, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, don't need that license on this device in this location. I want to move it to another location in my organization. You have to swap the hardware. You have to move the hardware. You can't just (laughs) move the license, right? Um, Additionally, you've got to always remember if you need to re-enter a key for whatever reason. On the ASA, we've been good. We don't have to do that. But, you know, if you need to re-enter a key, you've got to remember which keys are tied to which serial number and where is that serial number in my network to apply it. Mm -hmm. Um, Anytime you purchase anything, right, you have to get a pack. A pack then is applied to get a license key. A license key is, again, applied on a box. It's a multi-step process. 
all this is annoying and frustrating for customers. And engineers internally, too. Yes. <laughs> so smart licensing um, is, you know, the next generation of licensing where the device talks back to Cisco to obtain its license. So a customer has a portal that they can go to where they manage all their licenses centrally, and they can allocate licenses and features um, on any given device to a device, or they can remove it from a device and apply it to a different device. So it allows you much more flexibility at an enterprise-wide level over the licenses that you get from Cisco, how you apply them, to which devices you apply them, and where you move them around. So it just makes things a lot easier from that perspective. So on the ASA platform, um, obviously smart licensing is going to be really useful if you're talking about things that are feature licenses. Like if you have a a specific VPN configuration on one site because you had a bunch of users coming into it, but now that's gone, so you want to move those VPN licenses elsewhere, you can allocate and shuffle some of the features between your different devices. So that's right. How do you configure that, David? Like, what's the backbone that it runs on? The backbone that it runs... So the devices connect back to Cisco, mm-hmm. right, via TLS. Okay. So, you know, it's a secure connection to Cisco that devices connect to to get the information, right, that says, what is my license? And you go to the portal to allocate the license to the device. So right now, the smart licensing feature that we're talking about is only supported uh, for the ASAV platform in 9.3.2, but the same logic is going to extend out to the rest of our platforms, you know, in later versions of code. So uh, the analogy and the thought of doing it with VPN licenses would kind of hold true there. Absolutely. Or any other Cisco device. So it's being pushed out to basically all Cisco devices across all product lines. And David, what's been the general customer feedback on this kind of licensing model? Most customers enjoy it, right? I mean, it's it's simplification for them, ease of uh, ease of you know management and overhead and administration, right? So, um, but you know, hey, we want to hear from you if you guys are using it out there. You know, let us know what you think, and we're always looking to, for ways of making things better for sure. Definitely, definitely. So that was smart licensing, uh, essentially in a nutshell. Um, one of the bigger things, actually, in nine three two, I'd say the biggest, uh, is this concept of traffic zones. Uh, now, when I think of the word zone, I think of zone-based firewall on you know some of our ISR platforms. Uh, that's not re- really what we're talking about here. Um, what is this concept of traffic zones, Kevin? Sure, Magnus. Well, so with traffic zones, we have something we call ECMP, or equal cost multipath. So that getting that functionality is really the reason why we're implementing this zone functionality. What it does not mean is it's not you're not defining a zone on the ASA and then creating policies for that zone. What you're doing here is you still have interface level policies such as ACLs, NAT rules, things of that nature. However, you can add multiple interfaces to a zone and that will allow you to have asymmetrically routed traffic as well as is uh, load balance the traffic if you have, let's say, two different routes to the same location that are equal cost in the same zone then we can now load balance to those across the, both of those routes for interfaces that are located in the same zone. So I think it's I think it's really important here to uh, really hammer that distinction home. On the zone-based firewall side, you're permitting traffic between zones. That's not there there's no concept of doing that here. And you mentioned right. specifically interface level security still applies like an ACL applied to an interface. So Let's say I have uh, two interfaces that are in a zone. We'll call it my DMZ zone. Mm-hmm. Um, would I need to have the same permissions in both of them? Yes. So in order to, ha- to properly have two interfaces configured in the same zone, 
They're going to need to have the same ACLs applied to those interfaces. You're going to need to have the same NAT configuration on those interfaces. So um, you need to be careful when you're doing this um, because you don't want to have, you know, outside one and outside two with different types of NAT or ACL-related configurations on them because you're going to ha- you're going to run into unexpected issues on that depending on how the traffic flows. So again, you mentioned traffic flow and asymmetric routing. So th- what comes to mind is I have a host on the inside and I have this, we'll use an outside zone, right? So I have these two interfaces that are part of my outside zone uh, and my host goes out to the internet and it happens to go out outside one, mm-hmm. right? It gets natted to some IP, but now the return traffic comes in through outside two, which is again in the outside zone. Right. So is that why I need the same NAT rules there as well? Yes. So that's why you would need the same NAT rules applied to the interfaces, because if it came back in outside two and you did not have the NAT rule there, we wouldn't be able to unnet that traffic. So you need to have the same NAT rules as well as ACLs mm-hmm. applied so that um, so that the return traffic can, can come through properly. Now, w- the way this works is the ASA maintains a per zone connection table so that traffic can arrive on any one of the interfaces that is assigned to that zone. So that's really what the the big change is. Um, obviously, the ASA uses connections to control traffic or to permit or you know return traffic, right? So if you do a show con, you're used to seeing from you know my interface one to interface two. Mm-hmm. What we're looking at now is kind of like groups of interfaces right. that could possibly be associated with that connection. So obviously, the return traffic has to match the connection. The return traffic has to be unnatted. And the return traffic, or if it's newly initiated traffic, needs to match an ACL. That's so, right. So, you know, that's definitely a big change. Uh, and a lot of people thought it would be just like the whole zone-based firewall concept, where you're doing policies and permissions based on zones. But it's really about interface grouping in order to allow for, you mentioned, equal cost, multipath routing. Right. And the asymmetric routing, asymmetric routing right. as well. So if you don't have one of those two use cases, zones are not for you. They're not right. going to be helpful. They, they will not be helpful. They are not going to be useful. Um, additionally, if you do have a use case, as Kevin mentioned, right, for equal cost multipath or asymmetric routing through, you know, two different ISP connections, right, then best practices are when you write your NAT rules to use an any for the destination interface, okay, and for your ACLs, still have one ACL, but you apply it to both interfaces. So if you have an ACL inbound on your outside interface, right? That same ACL name, right? When you apply it to that outside interface, you apply it to your second outside interface as well. So you don't want to have two different ACLs, each independently tied to the outside interfaces in the zone. Yes, that's very good clarification. Thank you for for adding that in because you certainly want to keep your configuration as simple as possible, especially when you're dealing with multiple interfaces where the traffic could be arriving. Uh, just one other thing I want to mention here is is the load balancing algorithm that we use. So if you have a route to the same network that are that are equal cost, you have two different routes. Um, then what the way it works on the ASA is it will load balance based on a six tuple. So um, packets within a single connection are not load balanced across the routes, but we do use a specific uh, six tuple to load balance across equal cost routes. That's basically source destination IP address, source destination port protocol, and the ingress interface. So that's the way we do the equal cost multipath when we have uh, two equal cost routes. Interesting, interesting. So, you know, it's not that we're load balancing every packet. So if you are doing something like this, you might not see perfectly mirrored traffic loads, right? Because right? it's about moving a connection and you might have some high flow connections land on one ISP and maybe not so on the other one. 
That's right. And so, and going back to what, what Dave was saying, you know, this is something, it's, it's a great feature to have if you need it. However, for the sake of using it, you know, it, it does introduce some additional variables, like you're saying, because you are now load balancing across multiple paths. So if you have some sort of connection issue, it's a little more tricky to troubleshoot because now you have to do, you know, ingress and egress packet captures on, you know, three interfaces or more, depending on how the traffic is flowing. So just something to keep in mind before you, you know, you rush to use the feature, just make sure that it's right for your environment. Another kind of under the hood change that comes with the 932 code is something known as image signing. Um, so the ASA, whenever we build an image for it, we include a signature. Essentially, it's signed by the release team here at Cisco to say that this is a valid image and it hasn't been tampered with, right? Um, that is now introduced into the 932 code such that the ASA will validate its signature of the image it's about to load when it's booting up. And then in addition, if you were to copy over a new image, let's say you're going to do an upgrade or you know uh, any sort of change to that software image, we also go to verify that signature as well. Now, verifying a signature helps us uh, you know, kind of guarantee that the image hasn't been tampered with. And, and David, why is this suddenly a really kind of hot topic that we've been hearing about, you know, people tampering with images? Well, I mean, you know, attackers are always trying to find new ways of um, installing, right, things on different devices. And it's a top of mind concern for Cisco and as, as well as most, you know, large tech technology companies. And so we've been working on image signing here at Cisco for a long time, and it's now made it to the ASA. And we're very happy about it, right? We're trying to get end-to-end validation that, you know, you've got valid hardware, which you've always had um, checks in place validating the hardware, right? Now we have it validating the boot images and running, right, image. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just another step that we are doing to make sure that the authenticity of what you're running and what you're running it on is validated and has not been tampered with. So another small feature that was added for failover users is the capability to prevent config changes on the standby device, standby ASA. So the command is called failover standby config-lock. And why it's useful is that oftentimes customers have, say, terminal servers that connect to the console ports of their ASAs. And their primary ASA is always the one that should be active. And so they're used to going, you know, connecting to the terminal server to the console of their primary ASA and making config changes. But in the event that the ASA fails over, right, that primary ASA is now standby and they start making config changes to it, but don't realize the messages that are popping up saying warning, right, this command isn't replicated because you're on the standby. How they miss those messages, I don't know, but it does happen. So the command failure standby config lock will prevent uh, you from actually entering config changes on the standby device. So it could come useful. Um, is a nice command to add because there's really no use in 99.9% of cases to modify the config on the standby without first doing it, obviously, on the active and having that replicate over. Interesting. So it's kind of just that extra fail-safe. Yeah. Um, as it stands right now, even without that, you know, if you start making changes on your standby box, it does bark back at That's you right. to tell you, you should not be doing this. And, and I do not understand how so many customers just ignore that either. Yeah. You shouldn't be doing <laughs> but this. they do. Well, I'll keep doing it. Um, yeah. So this is, yeah, it's just a good fail-safe. So, so if you have a coworker who can't read and ignores those messages, it <laughs> would be good to add this command to your box. Right. Yeah. Just a little extra precaution. That's right. So uh, we've been kind of dancing around primarily firewall and core features here. Um, there's a little bit of a addition to our VPN functionality on ASA 932. David, what is it? 
Yeah, and I think some, you know, maybe a small subset of customers will um, like this capability. But we now support standards-based IP, I'm sorry, we now support standards-based Ike V2 remote access clients. So if, if you want to use something other than AnyConnect um, out there to connect to the ASA for remote access client and it supports standards-based Ike V2, then it should be able to connect fine to the ASA running 932 or later. So that's kind of opening up the uh, opening up the platform for you know some other vendors out there to kind of develop clients or platforms that will be able to work with an ASA as their VPN head-in. So that's pretty cool. That's right. Now, uh, there's one more feature we want to talk about today in 932, and that is known as system backup and restore. Um, obviously, the word backup is an important word for any administrator out there. It's important to take backups. Uh, I'm used to just copying my running configuration. So, And just a little history. We've yeah. been asking, TAC has been asking for this feature and capability since at least 7.2. And for those who have never seen 7.2, that was a while ago. It was a while ago. <laughs> so, Rob... Um, Tell us a little bit about what this system backup and restore is and why David says we've been wanting it since 7.2. Well, we've been wanting it because a lot of us in TAC are CLI guys. Yeah. We, we don't log into the ASDM. It, when we do, um, I mean, the ASDM is great, and I find it very useful in certain circumstances, such as looking at the live events. Yeah. And also they have a great tool in there, the backup wizard, where you can back up and restore uh, your configuration and and. Uh, files from the ASA. So now we have that capability uh, to do that from the CLI. So not only does it back up your running configuration, your startup configuration, it'll also back up your DAP, your plugins, uh, your bookmarks, things like that for VPN. Any connect images. Any connect images. Uh, certificates. Uh, certificates. Yeah, your web everything content. you need basically yeah. to you know, you, with one click or with one command, you can capture and, and everything's all zipped up in a single file. Everything you would need to replicate that device somewhere else. Right, right. Whereas before it was multiple steps because you could back up your running config, but then you had to get your image independently, right? You didn't get the binaries. Your customizations. You know, any connect packages. That's right. Yeah. So now it's one click and you get everything you need to back up and restore the identical box if it, you ever had a catastrophe. So I think that's you know really interesting, and uh, I like to look at things from an automation and scripting perspective. EEM is really cool, and I think one thing I would like to use this kind of feature for is actually to do periodic backups. I mean, and not just a write net or copy run to some TFTP that's server, right. right? You know, because obviously the with the complexity of the ASA, it's not just your running config that changes now. We have all these bookmark files and customization files for AnyConnect and different package versions. So uh, definitely using this as, I guess, your one-stop shop. Right. You can integrate that with the REST API, right? So you're oh, making your config you changes. You push out your... Uh, your script, mm -hmm. and at the end of the script, you run a backup and back it up to uh, FTP, TFTP server or something like that. So again, it's it's kind of the better way to grab your, I mean, obviously uh, copying your config is simple and to the point, but uh, if you want to get a good solid backup and be able to, as Dave said, uh, restore a completely functional firewall should you have a catastrophic failure, uh, the new system backup and restore functionality is definitely the right way. Yeah, now a couple notes, right, and caveats, if you will. Um, if you back it up via the CLI, you cannot restore it via ASDM. If you back it up via ASDM, you cannot restore it via the CLI. So whatever you back it up with, you have to restore it the same thing. Additionally, when you restore it via the CLI, you obviously have to have an ASA running image to issue the restore command. That 
version, that image, has to be the same as the one that you did the backup on. So the backup and restore have to be on the same version. Yeah, you're going to need about, yeah, about 300 megs worth of space for these backups. But obviously, you don't really want to leave them just sitting on the flash of your local ASA or copy them just to flash. Because if you're trying to do a backup in case hardware fails, why would you store the backup on the failing hardware? So uh, we recommend copying those off, uh, either backing up directly to an off-box option or uh, copying it using SCP. Obviously, if you're doing a backup, that might have confidential information there, like passwords or certificates. You don't want to transfer it in the clear. So one of the best copy options that we have from the ASA's perspective would be SCP. So if you're scripting these kind of backups, don't forget to copy them off. Or if you wanted to keep them on the ASA, we would recommend that you use an external USB flash drive on the ASA just so that you have the ability to remove that flash drive should the hardware physically fail. But remember, there might be confidential things in these backups, like certificates, private keys, and everything else. So you just want to keep uh, yourself cognizant of the, that potential data. There's also the master password uh, option that will uh, encrypt the plain text passwords. Yeah, you have to have that configured first before yep. doing the backup. Yep. Yep. So we've talked a lot about 932 and all these new functions. Uh, and this kind of boils down to the big so what question. What about this 932 code? Uh, do we think is really kind of the most useful for you, our listeners? You know, why should you move, or maybe why shouldn't you move? You, you know, when we look at these features, right, um, holistically, uh, a lot of the reasons that customers migrate from trains is to pick up new features or capabilities. So I would say for those customers that are on 931, this is a no-brainer, right? Upgrade to 932 um, for more stability, bug fixes, uh, including both PCERT fixes, as well as to get the new features that we talked about today. Now, if you're not on 9.3 already, you're running 9.2 or lower, then the question becomes, is there anything in this feature list that I really want that I should upgrade for? And I would say that the, probably the main one is TLS uh, 1.2 support mm -hmm. if you're running AnyConnect, right? And if you're running AnyConnect clients that are relatively recent or plan to upgrade to the 3.5 or the 4.0 clients, then... Uh, and, and notice for, for 4.0, you need the Apex license as well, so don't make that jump before um, researching it. But um, there's definitely a layer of protection that you get um, to get past some of those vulnerabilities in uh, TLS and SSL, right? I, I think that's the main one. I think the other ones are more nice to have yeah. features or capabilities, right? Uh, you know, how many people are going to use uh, the REST interface or want to play with the REST interface? Um, you know, zones, again, very special use case for when customers want to use zones on, on the box for ECMP or asymmetric routing. Uh, image signing, right, it, it is a great security feature. We're not going to um, diminish its value, but in applicability, if you're very security conscious or in a highly protected or you think you're going to be attacked by some nation state, then yeah, you probably might want to upgrade to it. But for the average person, uh, you're probably not going to really see any benefit from it other than, you know, this is uh, the direction that we're definitely going in. Um, but I don't know, what do you, what do you all think? Any, anything well, else? Well, I, I mean, there's you know, one of them that kind of sticks out for me is the system backup and restore function. I think, um, and and actually for me personally, a lot of the REST API stuff, I like to write my own tools and, and programs. So playing around with something like that, I think, you know, I could probably come up with some cool management custom built thing for whatever my enterprise needs. But again, David, you, you, you bring it up. These are very kind of corner case specific portions of the market targeted features. Um, they're maybe not the right thing for Johnny Everyman out there. So, you know, 
kind of take that with a bit of a grain of salt. But for me, again, system backup and restore, scripting that kind of stuff out and, and ensuring that, you know, my network has an, an up-to-date backup regularly that in case something goes wrong, I have everything I need. Um, that to me would be big and, and the REST API just more for fun. I see the customer use being REST API. I mm-hmm. think uh, the feature's really cool. It allows you a lot of geeky kind of things to do with it, you know. I think that's going to be popular with a lot of customers. Well, I mean, I think that's actually a little bit about, you know, the whole market shift. There's a lot of kind of custom interfaces, uh, software-defined networking. People are programming their network in all sorts of weird ways. And, um, you know, the REST API is a step in that direction, just to kind of expose the ASA to the creative masses that are out there. I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think just to echo Dave's, you know, what Dave was saying a little bit, it's, you know, these are a lot of new features. And, you know, anytime you introduce new features, you know, they're, they're usually not perfect the first time around. So I think the bottom line is, if there's something specifically you need, then it's, you know, definitely, you know, take a look at the new features. But, you know, it's not worth upgrading just to upgrade in, in all cases, especially if you're on, you know, a stable release, and you're happy with it, you have no real motivation to upgrade, then, um, you know, it's, in other words, you know, don't just use zones because they're there. Use them if you really need the use case that they're there to support. Uh, otherwise, you can find yourself in a situation where you've made things a lot more complicated, a lot more difficult to troubleshoot um, for no real benefit. So it's a good way to look at it. So it all boils down to upgrade if you think it's worth it based on the new features. Um, and as David mentioned, that's kind of our general tax standpoint. Stick to the code train that you're on unless there's an enticing feature on another version that you and your business would both experience some value in using. Mm -hmm. So we also like to, uh, before we wrap up, give a shout out to some of our listeners. And Alexander Gobachev wrote us in to ask us a question about GRE tunnel support on the ASA and provide us a use case on why he would really like to see it. So we just want to shout out to you, Alexander. Thanks for writing in. Uh, And all our listeners out there, we want to hear from you. Uh, send us an email to securityshow at cisco.com. Yeah, we're uh, always looking for feedback, new ideas for shows. Um, tell us what you like. Tell us what you hate. Uh, tell us your favorite network device. I don't know. Uh, just tell us something. We'd love to share it with uh, the rest of our listeners. So, again, for the Tax Security Podcast, thanks for listening, and have a great rest of your day.